0: Welcome to the Benefits of Knowledge podcast with Lauren Curry of Curry Financial Group Limited. In this podcast, we are focused on helping businesses set up and manage their group benefit plan to protect and assist their most valuable assets. Join us on this journey where Lauren explores ways to help you develop effective and cost efficient strategies for your business. Now, on to the show.
1: Hello and welcome to the Benefits of Knowledge with Lauren Curry. Lauren, what's going on today? Well, we're just having some fun here at the office today, Eric. And that's, well, we're trying as hard as we can, right? Um, I'm excited you've got a guest on the show today. Who'd you bring on?
2: Uh, we have Sheila Carras from Empire Life, and we're pretty excited to have her on board. This is, as you know, our first guest, so I'm really looking forward to today.
1: That's right. Sheila, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, Lauren has told me a little bit about what the topic was. I didn't know who the guest was today, but I'm so excited that you're on the show.
0: Well, thanks everyone. I'm excited to be here. This is my very first podcast.
1: Woohoo. All right. All right. Well, Lauren, I, I know that you have uh, a ton of questions and I'm going to uh, be learning quite a bit. So take it away.
2: All right, so I just really want to uh, reach out and thank one of my clients, Lindsay Richards, who is the HR manager for NEFAB Canada here in Peterborough, Ontario. Uh, I was having a conversation with Lindsay. She had some great questions about long-term disability, and we made a decision that I would invite Sheila uh, to have a meeting with Lindsay and I to make sure we got her questions answered from the real LTD professional. So, uh, well, thank you to Rin- Lindsay. And uh, that's where this all started from. So, so Sheila has joined us. And again, thank you, Sheila. This is great. I just want to let everybody know Sheila is the Director of Group Life and Disability Claims at Empire Life. Uh, Anybody that knows, we have a lot of business at Empire. They're one of our favorite partners. Uh, She's worked in group insurance for the last 21 years in both the direct and the reinsurance markets. Sheila currently oversees the life and disability team, ensuring timely, appropriate management of claims by applying industry best practices. She works with various partners in the industry to explore innovative solutions to enhance Empire Life's claim management strategy. Now, because we're uh, dealing with the insurance company representative here, I've got to do a little bit of legal housekeeping before I can ask Sheila any questions. So, this podcast reflects the views of the Empire Life Insurance Company as of the date published and is subject to change without notice. The information in this podcast is for general information purposes only and is not to be construed as providing legal, tax, financial, or professional advice. Empire Life makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this podcast. Empire Life expressly disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or other damages arising out of any individual's use of, reference to, reliance on, or any in- inability to use this podcast or the information presented in this podcast. There, now that we've looked after all that, I guess we can get on with the podcast. Are you all ready, Sheila?
0: I am, and thanks for that. I know that was a mouthful to read off.
2: <laughs> right, that was That was just, I felt like I was practicing here, but anyway. Okay, so long-term disability. Um, A common thing that I hear uh, from many of uh, our clients, uh, we talk about employees and they've been off work for long times. Um, They're not sure how co-workers are going to welcome them back when they go back to work after being off. And they are actually nervous or even scared to return to work. So our first question is, what do you do when employees are reluctant to return to the workplace after being on disability?
0: I think this is a really great question to start with because it's something that um, employers might not think about when they have an employee off on disability. But when you think about any absence you've had from work, I mean, vacation is an example. If anyone can remember going on vacation, I know it's been a while for all of us, uh, but after a week or two away from the office, you come back and you're probably not super eager to get back into work the next day. And that's after two great weeks of, of fun and, and excitement. So imagine after a longer period of time when you've been sick or injured. it It's a challenge. So we do face it a lot normally, not even just during the pandemic. But this past year with COVID-19, it's it's definitely made this issue more prevalent. So um, we do have to understand that every individual has unique circumstances and and we have to think about what those circumstances are and make sure that we provide them with whatever support we can to help them transition back into the workplace. It's not one size fits all. It's not the same answer for every single person in every situation. Our claim managers and return-to-work facilitators. So those are the people, some insurance companies refer to them as um, rehabilitation consultants, uh, our rehab team that helps people return to work. Uh, They work with the employee and their employer to find out what options are available. So that could include, um, just as some examples, maybe returning on a gradual basis, doing a few days the first week or a few hours at a time even over a period of maybe four to six weeks. Or maybe they have modified duties that that someone can transition back into. Alternate work arrangements like working from home, which has become way more possible than it ever used to be. Anything that we can do to make that transition easier. And we also work with providers to offer internet, virtual, or in-person cognitive behavioral therapy, which if I talk about it again, I may refer to it as CBT. And that helps the employee set goals and and really take responsibility ownership for accomplishing the goals and including and leading up to that return to work.
1: Sheila, you said something there that um, I'm a little confused on. You said you work with providers to offer internet virtual, or in-person cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, which is intriguing to me, but what is the difference between internet and virtual? Isn't isn't the internet virtual?
0: <laughs> yeah, so great, great question to get the distinction there. Virtual, think about virtual as um, the same thing as in-person, only doing mm-hmm. it over a video conferencing platform mm-hmm. like Zoom or Teams or how we've all been working this past year, or a lot of us have been working. Internet-based is is a newer sort of cognitive behavioral therapy. And it's not your traditional discussion talk therapy with a, with a therapist. It's uh, it's really app-based. And the, the employee or the disabled claimant is typing out their answers on their phone or on a computer or a gotcha. tablet. And they're going at their own pace. So uh, they might still communicate with the provider by text or email, um, or maybe even a call once in a while, but it's more really texting.
1: Hmm. Okay, thank you.
2: All right. So you mentioned the pandemic. So I am assuming that there's probably been much more reluctance to return since the pandemic pandemic because of people just being... scared of the COVID virus.
0: Yeah, absolutely. We've seen this quite a bit, maybe not quite as much as we expected. And of course, you know, it's definitely been a period of expect the unexpected and all of your predictions are thrown out the window. But we have really encountered this where, you know, maybe it's the individual who feels they're at a higher risk of becoming seriously ill with COVID-19 um, or, or just not sure what the employer has in place or, or what's happening and, and what might happen to them, um, what their other co-workers are doing. There's lots of reasons people have been hesitant over the year and who can blame them because nobody knew what was going on from day to day sometimes so our role you know our role is really to assess their their disability their ability to work and then if they've got um a reluctance like this that's not related to the disability but more their workplace we direct them to their employer their human resources representative if they have one at the workplace and request that they help them in understanding what protection they have in place to, to help them understand that the workplace is a safe environment, what they've done to make it safer, um, or if there's, there's still some challenge there and the person still doesn't feel safe to return to work, we, we ask the employer to help that person access the appropriate income replacement benefits that fit their situation. And the government's provided a lot of different options this year for sure.
2: So that's, uh, you know, it it is important that people do understand that uh, insurance companies have certain roles and uh, sometimes the lines get a little bit blurred, but uh, the employer has, you know, a certain obligation or responsibility to look after their employee and and assist them. Um, And your role at, you know, at the insurance company is very defined of, of this is what part we're looking after, right? So are we disabled or we're not disabled? Exactly, yeah. Uh, All right. So we've talked about being reluctant to go back to work, but there must be many things that make up the decision about when an employee can or or needs to return to work. So uh, what do you take into into consideration when you're assessing that return to work ability?
0: You'll probably hear a lot of insurance carriers refer to their definition of disability and it becomes such a common phrase for us that we forget this isn't, you know, known lingo out in the normal world. So forgive me for using that but we do we do talk about our definition of disability and, and the most common definition is um, the ability of a person to do their own occupations in that in that first two years of disability. Um, after that, we talk about their ability to do any occupation. So when you, when you think about their ability to do their occupation, it's not based on a diagnosis, it's based on their their function, their functional abilities. So we, we think about that at, from a physical perspective and from a cognitive perspective, and then we compare that functional ability to what the duties of their occupation are. So again, someone with an impairment um, in a physical or cognitive aspect might be able to do certain, certain jobs or occupations, but not their own. And so we have to compare all of that. So we get that information by talking to the employer about the employee's abilities, and we talk to them about what the employee's restrictions and limitations are. So we say this is what they can and can't do anymore, um, or for a limited period of time. And we ask them what they could accommodate, what the employer could um, change about their job or or find a different job for them to do. Um, and we do talk to the employer about what we call their duty to accommodate. And we also understand that sometimes they they really aren't able to, and and there's a a term for that that it's it's undue hardship. So if someone really can't accommodate um, a disabled employee, then we understand that. So we we look at alternate options for returning them to work and maybe they need a work hardening program so they just need to gradually increase their their physical ability again and we can simulate that outside of the workplace or it might be just reintegrating into dealing with people every day and it might be a good option to start with a volunteer opportunity in the community for example so there also might be situations where where someone can't go back to their own place of employment, but they could do their occupation at a different workplace. So we can also give them help with that as well.
2: Oh, that's interesting. I never would have thought of uh, either the volunteer work or going to another location. So good. So that's, you said that's the first two years. So what happens after the first two years?
0: Yeah, so another great insurance term comes into play. <laughs> it's what we call the the change of definition. So where we, we look at their ability to do any occupation. But it's not as simple as saying, oh yeah, someone with your particular disability could do this random job I've pulled out of the air. We have to take into consideration other factors like the the person's education, uh, their training experience, their salary, uh, what languages they can speak, how old they are. Um, how long they were working for their last employer, all of those different factors have to come into play. And so if we believe that based on all of that, someone would be capable of doing a different occupation, um, but it's been been a long time, maybe since they applied for a job, maybe they've been at their current employer for 10 or 15 years, then we can offer them job search assistance. Um, So that includes things like resume writing, how to look for a job, Uh, coaching on interview skills, things like that, keeping in mind that someone who's been at the same employer for 20 years or more probably didn't have all of the internet options available the first time they were looking for work 20 years ago. Uh,
2: Yeah, I can tell you the last time I looked for a job, uh, things were much different than they are today. (laughs) Um, Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so one of the things I I do hear questions about quite often, uh, and I guess People are kind of worried that the insurance company, yeah, you're gonna you're gonna make me get another job after two years, but how am I going to be able to you know maintain the same standard of living? So you mentioned earnings as part of this uh, you know decision. So can you tell us a little more about that?
0: Yeah. So every every insurance carrier um, might have a different target for that, but the range is is pretty small. It's usually about 60 to 70 percent, or some might say they match the LTD benefit amount, which is about 67 percent of their their pre-disability salary. So what that that salary was before they went off work in the first place. So at Empire Life, we use 70 percent as a guideline. Um, If anybody's flipping through their contracts, you won't see that in there. We haven't put that into our contract, but it's the guideline we use when we're we're looking at alternate occupations for somebody. So that means in order for us to determine someone's capable of doing a different occupation, we're identifying the jobs that they're qualified for and and that they could earn at least 70% of their pre-disability income. So to make it a really simple example, as a CEO who's making over $100,000 at their pre-disability job, we wouldn't say, oh yeah, but now you're capable of working at um, a minimum wage job, like at a bookstore or something like that, because we realize that's not comparable to their, their pre-disability salary. All
2: right, that's that's good. That should give people a good peace of mind. Uh, I'm actually surprised the number's that high. Um, a lot of times I've heard 60% was uh, was kind of the number out there, so that's that's great to know. One more more thing I can talk about Empire Life for, so... Um, Okay, um, so on to the claims part, Um, as an advisor, I get a little frustrated on this area and I realize that everything's privacy, uh, but I never get any information about ongoing claims. Um, So can you tell me what level of communication can be expected between the insurer and the employer and then the employer and the employee over the course of a disability claim?
0: Yeah. And this, again, can really vary depending on the claim. Um, And I guess as an advisor, it's a little bit comforting. It's that no news is good news situation. It's only usually when there's there's a concern that it's escalated to you. But the employer needs to know for sure. They've got to know if they if they need to replace this employee and for how long. And they want to support their employees and answer any questions they have. So they they absolutely need to know a bit more. Um, but you hit the nail on the head with your privacy. Comment. We're we're really bound to that, and and we have to be really careful with what information we share. Um, so a lot of times, employers want to know details about claims, and and maybe even just get an idea of what sorts of claims their employees are having, and and we can't really provide that information unless there's so many claims that. Um, It would be anonymous to tell them, you know, for example, if we were to say there were five cardiovascular claims and five mental health claims without knowing who was who, you know, we want to protect the the people's privacy that way. So we don't give a lot of details on that. Um, But with a group with lots of ongoing claims, um, when a return to work is expected, you know, the employer might want to have a regularly scheduled discussion with the insurer, maybe once a month or or maybe biweekly if there's a lot of people in a gradual return to work or, or coming close to that. So it's really, um, you know, matching the needs of the, of the employer and as the insurer, that's our responsibility to make sure we're matching those needs. Um, but as a minimum, the employer should always be informed of the decisions on the claims and the time frame the claim has been approved for. So, so like I said, you want to know how to how to workforce plan for your team of people who are there. Um, so we definitely encourage that. We also encourage an employer to provide whatever information they may have that's pertinent to the claim. So you know, keep in mind that the employer may not and. and maybe is unlikely to know the detailed medical information about the claim. We definitely don't expect them to, but if they have any information that they think we should know, we welcome that any information is useful for us. Um, And it's also possible that someone could have stopped working due to one condition, but a, different condition that the employer is not aware of is is what is preventing them from being able to return to work so uh you know employers should be aware of that too and keep that in mind if they don't understand why someone hasn't come back to work if if they think they went off with a broken leg and it's been four months and they just can't figure out why they've returned to work um we want to make sure they understand things could have changed and we just can't tell them what they've changed to um so the other question we get a lot about communication is: is the employee and the employer talking to each other when the employee's off? And we we definitely recommend that we want the employee to maintain that contact with their employer, and that can be hard for the employer to initiate because uh, you know they might not have access to the personal email or phone number or whatever contact information for that employee. They probably just have their, their work phone number and email that they're not using on disability. So the ball is really in the employee's court to maintain that contact. And we definitely encourage them to do that and to discuss the different return to work options. But if, you know, sometimes it happens that the employee really has no intention of returning to that workplace. And as soon as we know that, we ask them to make sure they've told their employer and and do a proper resignation because we're going to help them try to find a different job and move on and, and get better. But the employer has a right to know that they have no intention of coming back to work.
2: Yeah, that would be very <clears throat> important information to know, right? So, um so I, I guess maybe something that we could add to our administrator's checklist here is to encourage employers to make sure they do have like a personal phone number, email, that type of thing. So they, they can contact employees if they're away from work because, you know, uh, again, pretty a lot of people nowadays, uh, they've got that work and the personal email and if they're not at work, they're not using the, uh, the work one. So that makes a lot of sense. So, And I think it's just very, very important that everybody is aware that the more communication, the better. It's better for the employee. It's better for the employer. You know, it's just better all around. So that's good. Um, <clears throat> so the next question that uh come up in our meeting with Lindsay actually it was one that we do discuss uh, when I'm, I'm going over the administrator's checklist with people. So how about I'll jump in and maybe answer this one. <laughs> um, the question, yeah, how long? <laughs> sh- all right. How, I'm letting you off the hook. I'll give you a break. Um, how long should an employer continue extended health benefits and dental benefits for an employee who is on disability? Uh, And this could be for, like, different leaves, but disability is probably the biggest. Um, So very important, again, this is nothing to do with the insurance carrier. Uh, Whether it's Empire Life or any insurance carrier, this is not a decision made by them. And, you know, we certainly do have... uh, regulations in in here in Ontario, for sure, um, of how long things are expected to be provided to employees. Uh, But what I encourage employers to do is to have a policy in place. Let's not try and establish a policy after the fact. We should have this stuff done ahead while everybody's healthy and at work. But have you know, their uh, human resources and their legal teams should be putting together uh, company policy saying that if an employee is off work, how long are we going to, you know, provide these health and dental uh, benefits? And if there's a, you know, quite often we have situations where the employee is paying a portion of that. In that situation, they would be expected to continue their portion. uh, But there should be something in writing just saying that, you know, whether it's 24 months or whatever the number is, there's many different ways of doing it. uh, But that is really up to the employer to have those things in place. Uh, I always talk to the employers. As soon as they ask me those questions, I say, no, I'm not a lawyer. I really recommend you do talk to a labor lawyer about these types of things as well. So anyway, so there. I covered that one off for you. And since we're on policies and procedures, uh, what policies and procedures would an insurer recommend for the employee employers um, that they have in place to help support the disability program?
0: Well, and thank you for handling that previous question because it is one <laughs> we get a lot, and I have the same disclaimer. I am not a lawyer, so it's <laughs> <that's> perfect. Um, <laughs> but other policies that that we come across a lot that we wish that were were in place, um, really, really strong performance management policies and, and programs, and um, you know to, it's important that the that the employment issues are handled appropriately at the workplace. Um, so, just to sort of explain what I'm talking about, we we often see claims um, where there's been no recent medical history, visits, concerns on in their doctor's notes. Um, but when when something comes up at work, and you know, it could be a performance issue, an attendance issue, maybe not getting a promotion they were up, they thought they were up for, or a conflict with a coworker or a manager, uh, job change, shift change, all kinds of things. Um, anything like that that's got them upset about being at work. Uh, The employee might go to visit their doctor and talk about how it's stressful for them, this work situation. And so the doctor naturally suggests they take time off work. Um, And that might be totally reasonable and, and a beneficial suggestion for sure. But it doesn't necessarily mean that that employee meets the definition of disability. So that's why we say it's really important that the employer addresses the performance issues at work in a timely manner and, and and let the insurer know if any of these issues were going on if, if a disability claim is submitted.
1: Well, I mean, you guys have already both said it. I'll say it again. I'm not a lawyer either. <laughs> but <laughs> so none of us are lawyers. And, and I would think that there may be some questions about what that definition is and what happens if an employee doesn't meet the definition of disabled. How does that work?
0: Well, yeah. So if their claim is declined because they don't meet the definition of of disability, um, you know, we always we always explain that to the employee and and we're not telling them that their doctor was wrong with the diagnosis. That's Mm -hmm. a really important distinction to make. We're not arguing that at all. And we're not even arguing their ability to to be at work, maybe um, in certain situations. We're not saying, oh, we think you should be at work today because there's a lot of reasons someone stops working and it, it's a bona fide reason for stopping work, but it doesn't mean they're disabled. So understanding all of the different reasons that that someone's off work and um, what other benefits might be available to help them in an income replacement aspect uh, in those situations is really important. And we can help guide them there, but it, it's even more helpful if the employer is aware of this you know, before the absence even even begins. Um, So to help explain that, like, I like to use employment insurance as an example. So when you think about employment insurance, and and this has been harder in the past to explain because... it's not something that everyone thinks a lot about, but mm-hmm. it's been talked about in the Canadian government and in the news a lot because of all these benefit changes that have been happening this year. So it's more front of mind. But they they have all kinds of buckets of benefits to provide income replacement. So they've got one for job loss, your traditional employment insurance. They have a compassionate leave benefit. Um, so you know if you're if you're taking time off work because someone has died or um, or maybe a caregiver leave benefit because you're taking time off work to look after someone um, and then they have the sickness benefit so disability insurance your long-term disability ltd benefit is only that last bucket it's only that sickness benefit so if someone has to stop work because they themselves are injured or sick um, so you know, so it's, it's helpful for an employer to understand that so they can guide them in the right direction before they leave work. But if we, if we get that claim that they don't meet the definition of disability, then we can also um, help guide them in the right direction.
2: Great. So employers, important to know what other things are available. and that's, So that's good information. Uh, okay, so we've got through quite a bit of stuff here and we're going to come up to the last question of the day. And uh, this is one that everybody is asking. So as a disability insurer, what are you seeing and what do you forecast will happen with the COVID-19? Yeah, and that is a big question. (laughs) It changes
0: so much and we have talked about it so much in our industry this year and and thinking back to a year ago this week wow <laughs> everything yep. we predicted that week it definitely didn't come true some of it did but definitely not everything and and some of that in a good way right um so you know we we anticipated a huge increase in volumes in in disability claims and um, and, and a lot of us saw fewer claims than we expected. So, you know, we're trying to think, well, why why is that? And, and it could be because of the government benefits, like the CERB that were introduced fairly quickly, which was was great for a lot of people. Um, you know, it might even be that people were working through conditions that they might not have before, just because the whole world was in this situation together. And I think it just sort of builds this sort of we can get this, we can get through this mentality, right? Um, so a lot of superheroes came into play over the year, I'm sure. Um, there were also some delayed visits, not some, probably a lot of delayed visits to physicians and then you know, surgeries and other procedures were cancelled. So it might just be that we had fewer claims so far, but that might catch up, right? So so still still predicting and still projecting, um, I think we're gonna we're gonna see an impact of this pandemic on the health of Canadians and the, the impact on disability claims long after we've all been vaccinated and, and feel like things have returned to normal. It's it's gonna come to our industry long after that. So you've you've probably heard a lot of discussion about potential long-term side effects. Um we've heard labels like long COVID or or COVID long haulers and and there's not a lot known about this yet. Um, so you know, we're, we're reading a lot, we're talking to a lot of doctors. Um, it's not an official diagnosis or even a syndrome at this point, it's just a list of symptoms. And so, uh, you know, it could end up that there's many different aspects of this, and it's going to affect a lot of different people in a lot of different ways. Um, and, and we have to make sure that we're sorting through the fact and the fiction there and, and working with our doctors to, to have a good understanding of that. But uh, there's also been, as I'm sure lots of your listeners have heard, a, a huge um, prediction around the rise in mental health issues due to the pandemic. So when you think about the whole impact of the pandemic on everyone in society, and a lot of people were really isolated, lonely, that's a huge impact on someone's health. Um, you know, Believe it or not, loneliness is a huge, huge factor in, in someone's ability to work and return to work. Um there was a lot of stress during the various stages of the lockdowns, and that was different all over the country in different regions. Um, there's probably um, a lot of cases of grief for people who have either died during the pandemic or were really sick. Um, the absence of, of normal closure from that, you know, where we didn't have um, a lot of time to visit maybe some elderly relatives in retirement homes. We didn't have normal funerals. Um, people can also grieve lost opportunities, life events, there's increased stress around work, job loss, relationships. I'm sure we've all known someone who's, who's broken up in the past year. And, uh, so that this will all come, you know, people will be sorting through that as, as restrictions get lifted and people are expected to go back to normal. And some people are going to feel like they just can't, um, there's also some potential physical health impacts. So we talked about, you know, sort of the physical long COVID potential impacts, but also um, musculoskeletal impacts. So a lot of us quickly switch to a home office thinking this is going to be a couple of weeks I can do it from my kitchen table or sitting on my couch or something. Um, and, and after a year, some people may still not have a really good ergonomic setup. So we could be seeing some repetitive strain injuries, back issues. Um, vision concerns, maybe from a lot of time on the screen when they were maybe in in-person meetings more often before. Um, you know, all those all those kinds of physical impacts, um, and also you know the fitness industry saw a huge rise in purchases of home fitness equipment, um, and a lot of people got healthier this past year. But not everybody jumped on that bandwagon. Some people actually ended up moving less. Eating more, and they had all these access to all the access to snacks at home and things like that. So some people may have become less healthy. So you know, there's the obesity, the diabetes factors that could be impacted by that. And again, thinking it was only going to be a couple of weeks, we never would have predicted impacts like that. But now it's been a year, and and uh, you know, will be longer. So all kinds of things for us to to think about and watch our our data for for spikes and different things.
2: Yeah. Wow, there's, boy, a lot to think about. I, I can certainly, uh, you know, see what you're talking about there about not some people moving significantly less. I used to play hockey three times a week, curl once a week in the, in the wintertime. So I was active four days a week and, boy, that just hasn't happened this last year. So uh, maybe I need to go out and get some of that exercise equipment you were talking about. So... <laughs> That, that was uh, so good. Thank you so much for joining us today, Sheila, sharing your knowledge with our audience. Um, if anybody out there has questions like Lindsay did, uh, we're more than happy to, uh, whether it's get Sheila back or, uh, you know, other guests on that uh, specialize maybe in a different area. And we're certainly happy to make sure we're bringing the knowledge to you that you're looking for. So again, Sheila, uh, thank you so much for your time. Uh, We really appreciate it. Well, and thanks for having me. It was my pleasure.
1: This was a fantastic podcast. A lot of great information. Um, Lauren, I'm right there with you. I should probably get some exercise equipment. I used to leave my house and I just don't anymore. (laughs) I work here, we live here. You know, this is how it is right now, right? So um, getting social would be good. Getting some exercise would be probably really good. Uh, But getting this information is the best. So thank you both for, for presenting everything that you did today. And of course, our last thank you goes to the listening audience. Thank you for listening to the Benefits of Knowledge podcast with Lauren Curry of Curry Financial Group. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when Lauren comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device this makes it much easier to share these podcasts with your colleagues. Again, thanks so much for joining us today. For everyone at Curry Financial Group, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day, and we'll see you next time.
0: Thank you for listening to the Benefits of Knowledge podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available.